as we read earlier in Luke chapter 7, I want to ask you a question as we, we dive in. I told you this morning was going to be just a little bit different. Praise the Lord, I will not preach as long as I normally do. The church said, yes. I want to ask you a question. What would someone who was watching your life, maybe a, a close family friend, maybe a family member, what would, what would they say that you were just like relentlessly dedicated to? I mean, if they were to watch you for a month, to be around you, be near you, what would they say, man, this person is absolutely committed to? I think for some, it might be a career, a job. You know, you might be that person who you are diligent, you are going to make sure you're on time, you're working constantly, you're thinking about work. It's, it's kind of not even just a side thing, but it's become a little bit a part of who you are. I was speaking with someone the other day in, in, a, in a small group setting. I was telling them, you know, we find our identity in a lot of different places. And one of the most difficult parts for a pastor is we want to find our identity in Jesus, but our job is also, quote unquote, sort of Jesus, right? And so it's a difficult place sometimes as a pastor to make sure that we separate our relationship with Jesus and our job. You may find yourself in a similar position. Like, you're this person. You are the mechanic, the nurse, the teacher. You, you are just fully engulfed into what you do. Maybe that's what you're recklessly dedicated to. Maybe you're a parent and what you do is really in everything, in every aspect, every thought that goes through your mind is about your children. You know, when they're not with you, you're worried about their safety. When they're going on that long trip, you're, you're constantly checking in, you know, making sure that they haven't had a flat tire or, God forbid, a, a, a car accident. And when they're with you, you're having conversations about them. Your life in so many ways is focused around who they are. Maybe it's other things in your life. I can't speak for you, but we, I think if somebody was to watch us, there's always at least one or two things in our life that people will, man, that person is completely dedicated to this thing or that thing. And I don't know your story, I don't know where you've, where you've come from, but what I want is I want the sort of passion and the, the reckless dedication where people look at me and go, man, that person really loves and pursues God, pursues a relationship with God. So when we ask, what are you recklessly dedicated to? I would hope that most of us are saying something like the Lord. But how do we get to a place like this? How, how, how do we wrestle with this, this identity of who we are in the everyday and, and the busyness of life? Because none of the things that I mentioned were bad, right? Jobs are not bad. You need them. Kids are, are great blessings. There's all sorts of hobbies and other things that we do in our life. But how do we make sure that the main thing stays the main thing? How do we make sure we answer the question that my, my reckless pursuit is in the Lord because when I find my firm foundation in him everything else can fall and fail and, and fall away but I found wholeness I found shalom I found peace in God I found my true purpose and once I found my purpose then everything else in my life has fallen in place the title of my sermon this morning is he is our way maker how do we believe that how do we show that? How can we be recklessly dedicated to who he is? So I want to walk through this passage that we read earlier. 
So if you've got your Bibles, turn there with me. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And I'm just going to kind of go through this verse by verse because there's, I think, a lot at face value in this story that's pretty easy to understand. But there's some, a lot of other things that are underneath the surface that bring a light to some really great truths of God. So verse 36, he, he begins telling us, Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records this interaction. He says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Paul is immediately at the very beginning of this verse, in verse 36, he says, one of the Pharisees. He's linking this story with the previous story of where Jesus has been approached by John's disciples and been asked a few questions and then John, Jesus answers them and he turns to a group of other Pharisees and he begins to teach them about the ways of the kingdom. And so Luke is connecting these two stories and he says one of these Pharisees. Now what we learn later, we've already read the passage so this isn't a spoiler, is this Pharisee's name is Simon. And so what we're going to see is this interaction between Jesus and Simon. So Simon has invited Jesus to a party. Now you might be saying, Chris, where do you see party at in this text? Well, there's a few context clues that I want to make sure that we understand that's going on to, to lead us to understand more of this exact picture. So the first thing that would allow us to know that it was a party is that Jesus has been invited and then all of a sudden, somebody who appears to maybe not be invited has made their way in. So in biblical times, when you would have a party, you would leave your front door open. Most, most theologians believe this wasn't just a party. This was probably the Shabbat meal, the, the, the Sabbath meal. And so this was probably a Friday evening where there was multiple people gathered in this Pharisee's house for this meal. That's the first context clue. The second context clue is that Jesus is reclined at the table, he says. And when this word in Greek, reclined, isn't like what you and I would think of, like the Amstar movie theater, leather chair, we're back and our feet is up. This joker is actually laying down on his side, is what recline would, would, would make us understand. And so at a normal gathering, maybe just a friend over for dinner, you would have chairs. But when there's multiple people gathering, like a big party, you would actually lay down at the table. And so Jesus would be on his side and his feet would be pointing away from the table. This is important because you might be asking yourself when you're reading this, like, how is this not the weirdest moment in the world when this woman's washing Jesus' feet? Like, I don't know if you're like me, I'm very photographic, like I, I see things. And so I'm imagining at first Jesus at a chair and this woman's like underneath the table washing his feet. That's an awkward scene. The scene's still awkward because she's washing his feet, but it's less awkward, hopefully you'll understand. He's laying on his table, the, the feet are away from the table, so you're not mixing dirt and food, right? Some of you are neat freaks. Some of you like your little condiments and everything separated. You're still cleaning the story. You don't have to get the heebie-jeebies, right? So you have this woman of the city who approaches. So that's a context clue to go, hey, this is definitely a party because somebody has just walked into the party. She didn't open the door, peek in and make herself in. It's kind of known that she is welcome. She can be there. So all of this we can see in verse 36. Let's continue verse 37. It says, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, meaning Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. 
Now, what is exactly, what is Luke trying to convey here through these two phrases of woman of the city and sinner? The truth of the matter is we don't exactly know. We don't know, there's been a lot of speculation, well, maybe she's a lady of the night. Certainly possible. There's also another possibility that her husband kind of rules over ladies of the night or has another job that maybe isn't reputable. And so what we can gather from this situation is that she is an outcast in the city. Meaning socially, she isn't wanted at gatherings like this. She isn't welcomed at places like this. So we don't know exactly why Luke calls her a woman of the city or a sinner, but here's what we do know, that all are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So before you kind of separate yourself from her, or maybe even separate yourself from the Pharisee, every single person in this picture except for Jesus is fallen. Every single one. And that's kind of the beauty of what's happening here. And so you have this, this sinner who sees a party and she makes herself, makes her way into this party, I should say, and recognizes Jesus and then goes and grabs an alabaster flask of ointment. And this was kind of an awkward scene in the next few moments, probably. There's, there's likely, if you go through those next few verses in verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet with her tears, or she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and then kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. This moment is kind of like everyone in the room is going, what is going on? I'm sure people were looking at her like, who is this person? What's going on with her? And then they looked at Jesus going, why are you letting this person touch you this way? Wash your feet this way. Like, maybe you have some suspect connections. And then everybody in the room is just probably thinking, you know, I just came here for a Shabbat meal. I don't know what's going on. It's a weird scene. And then what does the Pharisee Simon do? Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him, meaning Jesus, saw this. This is a key phrase that Luke makes sure that he puts in there. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. There's a couple of things that Luke is doing in those two verses. The first is he's revealing the deity of Jesus. Most of us, or a lot of us, think sometimes we, we can finish somebody else's sentence. Like we can read the room, we can look at them and go, oh man, I know what you're thinking. Jesus quite literally hears Simon's thoughts. Notice, Luke says, he said it to himself. Simon didn't whisper to somebody else like, man, what is going on over here? I can't believe Jesus will this happen. Isn't he a prophet? No, he says it to himself. And so the first thing that Luke is allowing us to see is that Jesus is God. This is a, a very important deistic moment. is showing us the deity of who Jesus is. It's also a moment that reveals Simon's heart to the reader. See, he, he, he doubts Jesus and he assumes that if you are of God, if you're a child of the king, then you're about the king's work. 
and the king's mission. And so you should then steer clear of the unclean and the broken. But Jesus models a very different truth here, doesn't he? And throughout all the scriptures. Jesus doesn't just steer clear from the broken. Jesus runs to the broken. See, what, what he's modeling for us is that the healed run to the sick. And that the whole run to the broken. And that those who are saved run to those who are lost. And so Jesus replies to Simon's inner monologue. Like, you're questioning me. And he looks back at him with recognition of name and says, I want to say something to you, Simon. And what I love is Simon's struggle. So here's Simon who's doubting, who's struggling. But how does he respond to Jesus? Say it, teacher. We talked about doubt for a few weeks. Here's another picture of someone who is likely trying to believe in Jesus. But Jesus has come in and broken all of the cultural norms that he's aware of. I want you to think about, we've been talking about evangelism and talking about leading people to Jesus. Here's where the church messes up a lot. What we expect is for people who are far from God to all of a sudden come and connect with God and culturally look like all of us who have been in Christ for 40 years. Like they're all of a, supposed, all of a sudden supposed to walk and talk and be culturally like us. As if culturally us is like the goal. Because culturally we're supposed to be like Christ. Because what we mean in so many ways when we say culturally like us is we mean wasps. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Right? Good old white Southerners. That's what we mean in so many ways. Who are clean. Who, who do these things. and We have these cultural norms and don't say this and don't wear that. Do all of these things. And so when people who are maybe outside of our cultural norm come to Christ, come to faith, we struggle as churches to accept them. And Jesus is coming in and breaking down cultural norms. And he's saying, it's about me. It's not about what you think is normal. That's what he's looking at the Pharisee and saying. Because the Pharisee loved God. He, he had some sort of respect for Jesus, but he was struggling to tangibly see what that looked like. And he couldn't let go of the culture that he was raised in. The man, if, as soon as you say that word, you're shunned. As soon as you do that thing, you're shunned. Rather than sitting at the grace of Jesus and understanding that transformation takes time. And sanctification is this thing that we are washed with the blood of Jesus over. It's not all of a sudden you gave your life to Jesus and, I don't know, Ebonics went out the window, right? Like everything in your life completely changed overnight. Lord willing, most things inwardly were different. Like you all of a sudden got new eyes and a new heart. You started to see the world in a very different way. But we're going to, I'm preaching ahead. So what does Jesus look back at this guy who's struggling to believe in Jesus and do? He tells him a, a story, a parable. And essentially what he's saying in that parable is that those who have suffered recognize the grace 
that has been given to them. So when we're in great debt and all of a sudden that debt is released, we recognize that. But when it's just a minor debt, you know, when it's, we went out to dinner with somebody and I forgot to Venmo them a little bit of dinner and they never said anything to me, I don't really recognize that forgiveness. Some of you are thinking, you're the problem, Chris, that's why, right? I'm, I'm still waiting on money from somebody I went to dinner with. I hear you. We want our, we want our $2. Anybody get that movie reference? Anybody? Raise your hand. Thank you. Anyway. But when we have a great debt, and all of a sudden it's wiped away, there's a huge recognition of the grace we just received. And this is what Jesus is pointing not only the Pharisee to, but everybody in earshot to, and you and me today. And essentially what he's saying is where, where there is no recognition of personal sin, there can be no acceptance of grace in Jesus through his payment for sin. Where there's no recognition of personal sin, personal debt. See, what Jesus uses this word in this parable, he uses this word debt. And in this parable, he talks about the forgiveness of the woman's sins. He ties it in later. So there's this debt that the debtors have. 550 denarii. But then they're forgiven that. The person with 500 denarii recognizes the grace received. Probably a little greater than the one with 50, right? And then Jesus connects that same story to the woman who's the woman of the city, the sinner. A little different than maybe the Pharisee, at least in his mind, at least in Simon's mind, we're, we're very different. And Jesus says, no, no, she, she recognizes the depth of my grace because she recognized the depth of her sin. And you still haven't recognized yours. You go to Romans. For the wages of sin is death. You could put the debt of sin is death. What Jesus is trying to push you and me to is one question. Have you recognized your sin? See, in order for Jesus to be this way maker, miracle worker, your firm foundation, you have to recognize your brokenness and your sin. Simon was struggling to believe in Jesus, even though he had heard and likely seen signs and wonders and miracles. You know what Simon was missing? He was missing the depth of his sin. The woman could see it. When we can recognize the depths of our sin, the grace of God is brighter than the darkness of our despair. When you and I can recognize the depths of how far we have offended God and how far we have spat in His face and how, how much we have pushed against the laws of our Creator, at that moment, when we have received the vision of how sinful and dark we are, right then, God can come in and show His grace, and the grace of God is brighter than the darkness of the despair that you might find yourself in. And what the woman reveals to us through her worship is that she recognized her sin and then poured herself out over Jesus, asking for forgiveness. And what did he do? He provided it. 
she was recklessly dedicated. In the middle of a party, she did something that was probably very embarrassing. She was completely committed to making sure that Jesus knew that she recognized who he was. But it didn't stay there. But she recognized who she was without him. Broken. Alone. Do you recognize who you are without him? Does the majesty of his name stir an affection in your soul? Are you in awe and in wonder of who he is? Because the only way to be recklessly dedicated to God and to understand the glorious nature of who he is is to have an acute awareness of how broken you are and how dead you were before him in your trespasses. And until you get to that place, man, there's no great sermon on how to live a better life. There's no how to be a better you. Read this book, self-help. There's no, man, let's, let's, let's preach a sermon on how to save your marriage or how to have better friends or how to do better with your finances. None of that stuff matters if we can't come to a realization that we are nothing outside of the person and the work of Christ. Like, are you feeling, are y'all alive out there? Because that's a big thing, right? Like, it's huge. Like, we come to this place and we, I feel like what we want sometimes is, man, pastor, give me a sermon that's just going to make me feel good. And you know the best thing I can do to make you feel good is for you to recognize how fallen and depraved you are and how glorious and how good he is because he said, come, I'll make you new. You want to know how to have a great marriage? Be in Christ. Be united in Christ to becoming one. That's how you have a, have a great marriage. You want to know how to be a great business owner? Be humble. Lean on him. You want to know how to have great friends? Serve as Jesus served. Like, don't rest on your own understanding and your strength, but lean on him for everything. And that place, that beginning place, is both the beginning and the end to live in light of the gospel. It is who you're meant to be. So you want to be recklessly dedicated? You want to be a happy person? You want to find joy and peace? Surrender at the cross. Because he came to give it all for you. You're no different than this woman. You're a sinner. You might feel cast out. You might feel estranged. But Jesus has come to say, I can be your family. I can reunite you to the Father. Maybe you find yourself in a moment like Simon. I mean, I've been raised in the church. I get all the things. But if I'm honest, aren't I just like a bad person and God makes me a little better? If you find yourself there, my heart just wants you to hear the answer is no. You're not just a bad person. You're spiritually dead. Go to Ezekiel 36 and 37, this picture that God reveals to the prophet is that there's this sea 
of dry bones. And he looks out, and there's nothing but death around him. And he says, breathe. And this, this breath is the, the same breath of life that God breathed into Adam and Eve. The same breath of life that he, he breathes into the scripture. In the Hebrew word, it's the word ruah. It, it's life. It is. And he breathes. And all of a sudden, the bones start coming together. And sinews start happening. And all of a sudden, there's a vessel. A life. This is what God comes to do in you through the spirit he comes to take you who are spiritually dead and make you spiritually alive and that can happen for you today right now how do you get to a place of alabaster worship where you're pouring it out where you're recklessly dedicated and devoted to him you recognize that you're in need of a savior you can't do it. I can't do it. Only he can do it. And you surrender to him. Let me pray. Lord, I just ask that as we encounter you this morning, and sometimes what, what seems like the harsh blade of reality, the gospel says that it is offensive. Your word tells us that this truth is offensive. And so, Lord, I, I pray in our offense that you'll come make your presence known. That we don't just have to stay in the pit of despair, but you can bring us out in the glorious light of your gospel, of your truth. That we were sinners separated from you, but yet you came through your son died on the cross, rose again three days later so that we could be reunited with the Father and all people who put their faith and trust, trust and hope in you will live eternal life and live an abundant life here and now. God, help us to see that. That's the beginning and the end. That's the answers. That's the difficult equation to life. That our purpose was made to live in you. And when we recognize that, we can be recklessly devoted and dedicated to who you are. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.